Welcome to Park Ave Baptist Church Podcast, a weekly broadcast of our Sunday sermon. I'm Darcy Jarrett, pastor of worship, advocacy, and arts. I'm Himra Chenault, pastor of community engagement and stewardship. And I'm Lanta Carroll, interim pastor of Families in Formation. Park Ave is a bold, inclusive, and creative community where everyone is welcome. We uplift voices and identities that are marginalized elsewhere. We affirm all ethnicities, racial identities, ages, socioeconomic groups, gender identities, and sexual orientations. Because we hold to a theology that refuses to other anyone. At Park Avenue, our leadership model is non-hierarchical. And we practice an open pulpit. Where you will hear a multiplicity of theologically trained voices from different backgrounds, and social locations. We don't just preach and talk about deconstructing systems and structures of power. We We practice it. Through this podcast, we hope you will be inspired, encouraged, and challenged. Listen Listen with with us now. Good morning. My name is Lindsay Huggins, and I'm really happy to be here with y'all today. Um, My pronouns are she and hers. And um, I have been a part of this Park Ave community for a while, and it's such an important place to me, so I'm so glad that y'all are here today to be a part of our continued conversation on God, sex, and intimacy. Um, I do want to invite parents to be aware that there is an opt-in for kids um, in the back with Lanta, if uh, that's something you're interested in. So... We are a people of stories, and many of us in this room are people who value and hold dear the profound story of God's interaction with humanity and the created world through the life and witness and ministry of Jesus Christ, the one who honored each person for exactly who they are, who called us again and again to return to divine love who healed and walked alongside and fed and inspired and laughed and cried and did the impossible. The one who ate and fellowshiped with tax collectors and sex workers. We love to talk about that, don't we? We love to talk about Jesus, the one who befriended prostitutes. And it's always in our list of like countercultural things that Jesus did but do we really hear it? And do we really take it to heart? My friends, today we're gonna talk about sex workers. We are going to talk about how we as the church, especially as the American church, have utterly failed this community. In this continued conversation of God, sex, and intimacy, we've got to explore how our fundamental learned discomfort with our bodies and sex has harmed those who engage in sex work. Because as Lanta told our kids earlier, they're part of the family. They are loved and valued and deserve to have their voices and experiences heard and acknowledged. As we've discussed in these past few weeks, the church has taught a skewed perspective on sex and sexuality through the condemnation of physical desires and fear of the body. Many Christians from a young age were taught to focus on things above and ignore their own bodies, creating a fundamental separation between between one's spirituality and their physical existence. Christians are rarely taught to celebrate their bodies and 
desires and sexuality as a part of their spirituality. Christian women have historically felt this burden more strongly than men, relegated to either the status of a virgin or a whore. <laughs> Women's sexual expression has been policed via narrow interpretations of scripture and patriarchal social constructions. When women deviate from what is deemed acceptable by the powers that be, they are demonized. But really, we know that this type of thinking and believing harms all people and all gender expressions and all identities. And when the conversation moves to sex work, the choice to engage in sexual acts as a way to make a living, well, you may have the same reaction that many people did when I said I was preaching on the subject today of, woo, oh, okay, and good luck with that. So what we're talking about here today is sex work as a choice not the oppressive practice of sex trafficking. That is sin. That is the denial of choice and dignity, and that is not what we're talking about today. In my exploration of the relationship between sex workers and the church, I've worked to discover a Christian ethical response to sex work that honors the agency and dignity of those involved in the profession, drawing a distinct line between those oppressed through the abhorrent practice of sex trafficking and those who feel empowered by sex work. In recent history, the church has primarily focused on addressing sex trafficking, but there's been a gap in acknowledging and loving those who choose to be involved in the profession of sex work. While this is a worthwhile and needed work, oftentimes sex trafficking is mixed up and equated with all forms of sex work, thereby denying the agency and dignity of individuals who engage in this work out of their own volition. The church has condemned and ostracized and ignored these individuals, denying their agency and dignity. They've already decided what their story is and what sex workers need. How many of us have been in that position where people have already decided what our story is? They already know. They know what we need. And rather than listening to actually hear and understand, the church overall has merely feigned at listening in order to respond out of ignorance and sometimes self-righteous motivations. Now, due to the limited scope of scripture, the biblical text doesn't address a lot of facets of sex work. While we have a lot of different categories today, the Bible's historical and social context don't allow scriptures to speak to those particular professions. So in the text, in the canonical scriptures, we have prostitution. The first category of that group includes people who offer sex in order to earn money or some sort of personal favor, while the other deals with people who are in temples for various gods or goddesses. There were lots of um, Canaanite deities that worshiped fertility gods and goddesses, and in order to do that, there were temple prostitutes to engage in that worship. So you have the prophet Hosea warning the people of Israel to not engage with prostitutes in these rituals to honor these gods because they didn't want them to worship those gods. And then all across the Old Testament, you have references to Israel's unfaithfulness to Yahweh as acting in ways similar to a prostitute. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the writer calls Babylon, or as some might read it, the Roman Empire, a shameless prostitute who tempts people and nations into relations with her. So these images of prostitutes as inherently in opposition with God are ingrained within Christian consciousness and negatively affect the ways in which Christian communities address modern sex work. 
So while the Old Testament has different references in various locations of prostitutes, there is only one place where we encounter a narrative that includes a named sex worker. In Joshua 2, we get to meet Rahab. She is called Zonah, which translates to harlot or temporary consort or innkeeper. And it appears that <laughs> it appears that Rahab owns her own living quarters, where she has the ability to host guests and strangers. And what strikes me in reading this story is that there's no direct judgment on what she does. She is Rahab the prostitute. It's just a fact. And even though there's no outright judgment in the text passed on her, there's a sense, right, of someone living on the margins. She is other in this story. She's both prostitute and Canaanite, and most of all, she's a woman. So what's most incredible about her is that she's an active player in this story, given the overwhelming presence of men throughout the whole narrative. She is called out and she is named, and we're supposed to look up and pay attention. Rahab represents life at the margins, and um, Musa Jube, who's this awesome Botswana feminist theologian, writes that Rahab's characterization as a prostitute denotes her inadequacy and her wildness and her need to be tamed by those with superior morals who must save her. Rahab, however, proves herself to be an active character who commands her own destiny. This is a story of insiders and outsiders where the boundary lines are blurred as the narrative disturbs the patriarchal notion of a world set in binary opposites. Her story points readers towards the understanding that sex workers have agency and dignity as independent players in their own stories. She is bold and her voice is strong. Have we taken the time to listen to the voices of sex workers in our midst to hear their stories? Across the board, unfortunately, historically, the answer is no, we haven't. And if we dive into church history, my favorite activity, we can learn why. So towards the end of the 19th century, these moral reform movements began sprouting up all across the country to address issues of vice with the development of what became known as the Benevolent Empire. It was a widespread network of all these local auxiliaries that were controlled by these national umbrella groups. Um, these groups are supported by these missionary, Bible, Sunday school, and tract societies that were caught up in this evangelical fervor of the Second Great Awakening. People are hype, they are in it, and they want to make some changes in their society. They want to reform the nation of what it perceived to be sinful behaviors. So these societies for the suppression of vice were involved in a lot of different causes like temperance, um, abstinence from dueling, gambling, and of course, evil card playing. Um, they wanted to make sure people were observing the Sabbath, and they wanted to eradicate prostitution. So you have these evangelical, Orthodox, and Calvinist congregations who are all involved in this in order to police public behavior. And so while these movements, I think some of them probably did spring up as a desire to address you know, issues that they saw, it became fashionable to participate in these groups. It became a thing that like wealthy people did in order to appear benevolent, and that created some alternative motives for some people's engagement. Reformers defined sex work as a scourge to society that needed to be eradicated. And in order to combat the rise of it in nation's largest cities like Chicago, 
was a primary example, reformers proposed legislation to fight what they perceived to be a great evil. The members of these religious associations directed their attention to the sex workers themselves, assuming them to be victims of a diabolical system that sought to eradicate their virtue and eliminate the purity of society itself. That's a task. <laughs> but instead of cho women choosing to engage in sex work, reformers framed them as young, innocent victims who were seduced and betrayed and overwhelmed with hunger and subjected to physical violence as they were forced into this field of work. These moral reform movements considered sex work to be white slavery, framing all who were involved in this profession to be there by force while disregarding the consequences of the enslavement of black folks in their own backyards. Many reformers considered young women involved in this profession to be unaware of what it truly entailed. Mrs. Dora Webb uh, spun these tales in her address at the National Purity Conference in 1896 in her speech, Organized Prostitution, how to deal with it, stating that music and gaiety, which is bewildering to the tempted girl who is ignorant of the character of the place to which she has been invited, together with the serving of the finest confectionery and soft drinks, soon cause her to yield to the seductive influences and thus, step by step, the way is paved for her to become an inmate of the brothel. Mrs. Dora Webb, y'all. Thus, these women were seen as too ignorant to understand their actions and choices. Reformers lacked the understanding that although some women were manipulated into this, many chose this life out of their own volition, finding independence in their decision. While reformers targeted the depraved noblemen and unscrupulous foreigners, who they understood as victimizing these young sex workers, they pushed for more severe laws in order to squash the industry. But these laws only served to push the industry underground without providing support for the very people they claimed to protect. Instead, these women were further demonized legally and denied agency and dignity by the religious institutions who failed to recognize them as autonomous people. The legacy of these moral reform movements of the 19th century filters down into our contemporary culture wars as certain Christian groups attempt to shape society as they see fit oftentimes ignoring the agency, stories, and dignity of the people they claim to represent. Sex workers have played a significant role in the Christian story. Believers can learn a lot from Jesus' interactions and friendships with the prostitutes of his day. Gabriela Liete is a sex worker activist and writes, Our love for Jesus and our self-respect Will, greatly, will greaten our religious understanding, as will our knowledge that in the past we were very important people for Christ and for the formation of Christianity. We want light to shine on our Christian story. Jesus set forth a positive model for interactions with sex workers, not only engaging them, but spending time with them in friendship to the point where he scandalized people. Jesus honored the dignity of those who were considered too sexually promiscuous, acknowledging their full personhood and sacredness. Christians have a clear model on how to function, but so often throughout Christian history, theologians have succumbed to the sin of patriarchy, demonizing women for their sexual expression and condemning them as inherently sinful compared to men. Christian theologians considered the prostitute to be the archetypal sinner, this theological perspective begins with a false understanding that sexuality is sin. 
Augustine's views of sexuality have carried negativity regarding non-procreative sex through the ages and into many modern Christian theological views. And these ideas are so ingrained in contemporary Christian thought that it's often difficult to separate Augustine's theological perspective from actual biblical content. His surrounding patriarchal culture shaped the ways in which he viewed women in general, as well as his specific views on their evil sexuality. So many air quotes, y'all, today, so many. (laughs) In Augustine's view, women did not fully possess the image of God within themselves until they were joined with a husband. Only through relationship to men could women be made whole. In this lacking, they were more prone to sin. Augustine personally struggled with his sexuality and desires, causing him to see all sexual desires as evil. Aristotle's philosophy and this idea of body-spirit dualism largely influenced his ways of thinking and that he saw the body as something he couldn't trust. He could not trust himself. See, in his mind, women were the representation of the material and men were rational. So while men would conquer lust and desire with their superior minds, women were something to be dominated and shaped and molded and subdued. So under these influences, it's not surprising that female sexuality was demonized by the church. Augustine's influence has carried over to theologians like Thomas Aquinas, who was a little more moderate in his views on sexuality, but he still thought women who engaged in non-procreative sex were evil. Aquinas did, however, cite prostitutes as permissible and that they could be used to curb excessive male lust. Yes, (laughs) to him, they were sewers that could prevent men from engaging in sodomy or worse. Prostitutes protected good women and their dignity. Aquinas set a firm dichotomy between virgin and whore, categorizing all women who enjoyed sex and embraced their sexuality as inherently sinful. While many of these early church writings demonized female sexuality as a whole, and by extension those who engaged in sex work from Christian community, the rise of feminist theological movements have helped address the problematic nature of the church's previous responses. These theological efforts have sought to distinguish Christ's approach to perceived sexually deviant women and biblical content regarding sexuality from the writings of theologians who let their own battles with desire and learned hatred of women influence their theological viewpoints. Additionally, feminist theological work has helped shape a Christ-like model for how to best honor the dignity of those involved in the profession. God's work is creation sustaining and engaging all efforts that work towards healing. Jesus, as God incarnate, exemplifies this pursuit of healing for the world, condemning all things that seek to diminish the worth and value of individuals. Laura Schneider writes that despite the fact that Jesus' own life doesn't demonstrate tendencies towards dominance and could in fact be read as feminization of God with a, a powerfully patriarchal cultural environment, the development of the doctrine of God by men has ironically put Jesus' maleness to the service of patriarchal masculinity. Feminist theologians have sought to reclaim the Jesus of the Gospels who demonstrated love for all people, especially those who were marginalized because of their sexuality. 
Averin Ibsen is this amazing feminist biblical scholar and theologian who presents an understanding of scripture that focuses on the inherent good news for all people within the text. Because it's not good news unless it's good news for everybody. She views the Bible as something that should proclaim good news for those who read it, as well as those who are affected by its readers. For Ibsen, the good news cannot be understood without context, and oftentimes theological scholars forget their own social location and influences when writing about the historically complicated practice of sex work. Scholars have often failed to notice their own standpoint of somehow protecting decency by ignoring and filtering the experiences of sex workers within theological work. This particular type of theological work finds sex in scripture and in real life something shameful or marginal to religious meaning, or that finds sex work embarrassing or sex workers purely victims of circumstances that are already understood in advance by scholars. Theologians often forget to seek out the stories of sex workers in order to better understand their experiences, which they often cannot do or simply refuse to do. The feminist theologians can sometimes miss the mark too, though, in their tendency to erase the sex worker from the biblical text by reconstructing their stories, reading them as literary metaphors or dismissing sex workers' activists' demands for decriminalization as false consciousness or internalization of oppression. The overall impact of these feminist readings silences the agency of sex workers, erasing the historical presence of them in sacred texts and distancing them from Jesus. God's prophetic proclamation of the desire for human freedom and justice frames the exploitation of others as sin. Jesus serves as a primary example of God's desire to address and eradicate this sin of exploitation. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he spoke for the oppressed and the marginalized, offering words of hope that the kingdom of God represents a new and better way of living. There is no room in the kingdom of God for exploitation. Sex trafficking exemplifies the inherently sinful oppression of individuals, which God calls believers to speak out against. It is not sexual expression that is inherently sinful, but rather the manipulation and coercion of others to engage in sexual acts in which they are not fully willing and enthusiastic participants. Jesus was willing to speak his message of inclusion and love for the marginalized, calling out the dominating power structures that sought to keep the oppressed in their place, even in the face of death. Even though he was aware of the consequences of such a message, Jesus persistently spoke words of healing and salvation and liberation. Feminists and womanist theologians like Sharon Welch present Jesus' patterns of behavior as an ethic of risk. In his willingness to champion others, Jesus reveals an alternative to oppressive power structures in his model of offering abundant life, abundant life through healing and restoration. Sex work, like all other facets of life, must be redeemed. While theologians and individuals have different thoughts on how this redemption should take place in light of the life and ethic of Christ, believers can all agree that all people involved in the profession must be honored as dignified individuals. 
The church must acknowledge its complicity in the demonization of those involved in sex work and how it has diminished their self-worth through oppression and overall negative treatment. The church must work towards ensuring that those who fully and enthusiastically choose to be involved in sex work may engage in this practice in the safest way possible. Believers should uphold policies that protect sex workers' rights to safety and overall well-being. We must acknowledge and honor the agency of those involved, trusting them to know their own bodies and souls and which ways of living are right for them. When I asked a friend of mine who's a sex worker what she wishes the church could understand about her profession, she said, I wish that people would actually think about the fact that sex workers were the kind of people Jesus literally chilled with. I guess in general, my biggest difficulty with faith these days is how little many Christians in Christian communities are concerned with what Jesus was actually about. The message of that we should keep each other safe and love each other and not judge, which leads me to believe that he would support decriminalization and listening to what sex workers say they want and they need. The church has a long history regarding the demonization of sexuality and sexual expression for which it needs to apologize. Churches must understand the negative impact that the separation of the physical body and the desires from spirit and seek to present a holistic embodied theological perspective that honors the unification of the physical form and the soul. By emphasizing consent and respect as a primary sexual ethic, the church can prevent harm and create a paradigm through which advocacy and activism can be done. Christians are called to speak love into the lives of those who are experiencing pain and hurt and anger and abandonment and turmoil and chaos and discover the way that God is working through communities. The missional church must seek to effect change by acknowledging the light of God's presence in the lives of people. All people of faith in Jesus Christ are called to profess the inclusion that defines God's mission in the world. Believers must not settle for a world where people feel rejected and isolated, but rather they should seek to present each person they encounter with the inclusive message of God. Acknowledging the dignity and agency of sex workers requires a new framework for understanding sexuality as a whole. Although this is new territory in many ways for the church, believers can rest in the knowledge that this is the love to which we are called. May this be so for you and for me. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Avenue Baptist Church podcast. If you'd like to worship with us in person, our services are Sunday mornings at 10 a.m.-ish. We are at 486 Park Ave in Southeast Atlanta, across the street from Grant Park, at the corner of Park Ave and Sydney Street. To find out more about us or get in touch, visit our website at parkavebaptist.com. Now go into the world that is too often unjust. Knowing that the God who created you loves you and empowers you. To love boldly. Live inclusively. And to serve creatively. Amen. Amen.